Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Right now, I want to go over, get over to Anders Pearson. Um, he is the Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Nuveen. And Anders, I want to first get your take on the jobs report. Um, it was pretty fascinating. It was a miss, of course, but still an ad of more than half a million jobs in the U.S. economy. Yeah, the job, jobs data uh, always very interesting, a lot of focus on the markets. And, and at the core, I would say it's, it's more of the same here. We had okay, not great numbers. Uh, once again, some, some mixed messages uh, for the market to kind of digest. I think uh, you've kind of seen that on the ten- tenure today. You've partly given back some of the yield uh, move post the strong ADP numbers. And, and generally, uh, the market is expecting uh, strong job numbers, and we haven't quite been getting that. So so we're seeing a little bit less progress in the labor market. Um, that means less pressure for the Fed to remove accommodation, and, and that means a lower tenure. So continue to have uh, these mixed numbers that uh, makes it quite tough ultimately for the markets uh, to digest really what's going on here. And, and this debate around growth versus inflation really continues. Anders, I have to say, I don't envy you fixed income guys. I don't know where you go to get yield. If Where do I go to get some yield here in the fixed income markets? How much risk do I have to take to get a reasonably decent return? I know it's it's certainly a dilemma for all of us and something investors are are constantly asking us uh, around. And, you know, at the core, uh, we we maintain a fairly constructive view and we're comfortable keeping, you know, modest risk overweight stance here and and continue to focus on on credit and spread sectors. Um, You know, with the backdrop of this slowly improving economic uh, kind of environment, fundamentals still improving nicely, we, we still have... You know, in my mind, nice support from the Fed and the central banks. They're being dovish and patient and not looking to raise rates too, too early. Um, that combined with uh, stretch but still okay valuations, uh, we kind of call it we're priced for reality, not priced for, for perfection. So we're kind of expecting spreads to have more of a range-bound kind of type uh, theme there for a bit longer. So. So that really offers up a, a, an attractive carry trade or a coupon clipping kind of tough environment. So that we're kind of seeing that playing out for the next uh, several months and, and throughout the rest of the year. So, so to answer your question, we're comfortable kind of keeping um, more of a risk overweight than going down into the rating spectrum uh, and really like asset classes to offer this a little bit more of a reach for yield theme. So a couple of areas that we've been focused on are, are leveraged loans and preferreds. Uh, leverage loans, you know, are definitely benefiting from all of these trends. Fundamentally, the picture is improving. Lower defaults are happening uh, or are kind of seeing given the economic rebound. And for loans, you have a nice yield pickup spread profile, particularly when you compare it to other fixed income sectors. And, and a key aspect for us right now is, as well is that, um, you know, loans and preferreds generally have floating rate aspects of it. So, uh, historically, floating rate, uh, you know, performs very well in a rising rate environment. Uh, so that that's a key area that we're that we're finding value. And then finally, on the loan side in particular, we're seeing strong technical support. We've seen roughly 21 straight weeks of inflows. 
uh, been uh, coming up to about $23 billion of, of uh, inflows for, for the loan space. So very nice momentum. We expect that to continue uh, for the rest of the year. Uh, so loans in particular is expected to be a solid performer in this kind of right environment. All right, Anders, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your perspective on those fixed income markets. Anders Pearson, he is the Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Nuveen. Well, Matt, a couple of years ago, our next guest uh, showed me an app called Flight Radar 24. It kind of tracks airlines, air flights kind of all around the world. So now you can often around find your me. house. Yeah, you can just find me looking up at the sky, then down at the app, seeing where this plane is going. George Ferguson Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst. He's responsible for that. He's for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering the airline business for decades. Absolutely an expert on Wall Street. George, it seems like there are a lot more planes in the air. Um, give us a sense of where we are in terms of overall air traffic as we head into the busy summer season, and, and how are things progressing? Hey, so thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, what we're starting to see is that uh, the level of capacity that the airlines are flying is approaching, if not exceeding, 2019 levels. So that's a that's a great thing. Um, the load factors, uh, from what we're hearing, are are, are quite good. Uh, I think they're, I frankly think they're you know sort of 80s and 90s in some air, air, airlines, probably creating a little bit of uh, stress with the, the uh, flying public. What we still see is it's a very uh, leisure oriented bounce, right? And so that's keeping fares depressed a bit. So even as we see this increase in capacity, this increase in load factor, the, the revenue numbers aren't coming up as strongly. Uh, I think we really need to see the business traveler come back. And, it, and to me, it looks a bit like things have spread out on the bounce, right? So we originally thought that you would get a sort of really heavy bounce in the core summer season, July, August. You know, it looks to me like people are getting the vaccination and going on vacation right away. You know, they all have 30 days of vacation built up, so they get they get vaccinated, they get comfortable, and they decide, hey, we're going to go in May or in June on a vacation and disappear for a week or two and get on an airplane. That's what it's looking to us right now. Absolutely. On the vacation front, for sure. On the business front, I wonder what kind of developments you're seeing. Yeah, so, like I said, there, there we're still seeing businesses coming back uh, slowly. You know, even me and my business, it's, very, you know, very driven by air travel. So most of the people in my business should be, you know, willing to take meetings and ready to go to conferences because we're the we're the believers in air travel. And uh, you know, I, I'm starting to see physical con- uh, conferences. Uh, you know, late two Q, early three Q. They're getting some some decent numbers of people there. But I think we're on the early side of it as the aerospace aviation people. We don't think business travel is really going to come back well into sort of probably deep into 3Q. Uh, and, you know, we really think we still see it sort of being, you know, maybe it gets back to 60 70%-ish of last year um, in sort of 3Q, 4Q. Um, but we don't think it's sort of surging back to the 100% of 2019 levels until we get into, into 2022. George, we think it's going to be slow. George, can I ask you, Sorry. as one of the believers – Everyone who's connected to the airline industry swears by um, the ventilation system, says uh, you're unlikely to get sick in an aircraft. But all normal people know that when you go on a long-haul flight, you're going to get sick. Why is that, 
why is there th- that discrepancy? You know, I, I think that, um, of course, whenever you're stuck in, in tight spaces with a whole bunch of other people, I think, you know, human beings immediately get concerned about transfer of colds and whatever else. But look, I'll tell you, you probably don't know anything about the HVAC system in in the office you're going to every day, True. the restaurant you go to, and maybe True. not even in your house, all right? And I'll guarantee True. you the airplane HVAC system is looked at more frequently than all those places and has a bunch of fresh air coming through. So I'm a believer in that one, too, to be honest with you. George, how about international travel? That's that's a part of the business that is really profitable for airlines, but it just seems like that's, I mean, given how different parts of the world are, are dealing with the pandemic, that might be the last thing that comes along? It's a mess. I mean, and that's the t- other challenge we really see is sort of getting uh, everything moving again, getting that high uh, that high margin international travel back. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was looking today, Australia doesn't want anybody to travel into Australia still, you know, right now. Uh, you know, there's issues in the U.K. with, with uh, people traveling. In India looked good for a while, went bad, and now, you know, you don't want to be traveling to India. There's varying regulations about it fly between the U.S. and Europe and back, whether or not you're a U.S. citizen or a European citizen. It's a mess, and different countries have sort of different views on the virus, different risk tolerances, different willingness to require people to disclose vaccines. We don't think you see a really good international travel scene until uh, mid-next year. We think it's the earliest. We think it'll be a week one this year. And what we're seeing is the countries that have been more open, you know, for the U.S., Latin America, South America, that's where, that's where we're seeing the flights go to. That's a very leisure market, so that's a challenge. It's a mess. I uh, wish I were in the States. I would go to South America on vacation instead of trying to figure out which European country will let me in, even if I'm fully vaccinated. It truly is a mess. George, thanks so much for joining us. George Ferguson there, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. <laughs> Now, let's get over to Yelena Chilyatyeva. She is Bloomberg Intelligence senior U.S. economist, and she can tell us what happened with this jobs report. So, Yelena, let's start with the overall number here. It wasn't um, it wasn't just a miss. It was a, a big miss. If you look at the whisper number, on the other hand, it's on the right side of zero. And uh, we were above consensus, and we missed even uh, more, uh, I would say. I think True. Bloomberg Intelligence really- had 850, right? <laughs> Bloomberg Economics, yes. I think it, it's just uh, uh, just showing us that it's uh, the uh, inertia on the part of potential workers who remain hesitant to rejoin the ranks of employment. So whether it's unwillingness to lose those expended unemployment benefits or it's some sort of inability to find uh, proper child care uh, or just you know, simply uh, being comfortable will, with living on a smaller income. All these factors contribute to uh, limiting uh, people rejoining the labor force. And we saw a decline in labor force participation, and uh, that was the May's report. I think we will continue some inertia going forward in June and July, but maybe we will see some acceleration nevertheless, because uh, the augmented unemployment benefits expire uh, in the middle of this month in uh, half of the U.S. states. That could help motivate more people to uh, get back into the labor force. I think it will just take some time for um, job gains to accelerate to uh, you know, really uh, help close that 
huge gap in uh, employment since uh, the beginning of the crisis. All right. So, Yelena, a couple of months in a row where we the jobs numbers came in below forecast. So is this a, a problem potentially with the labor market or is it simply a function of economists really don't know how or having a tough time forecasting an economy that's reopening from essentially a, a standstill? Well, it depends on what you put in your model. If you look at uh, drivers of demand, they are surging. Look at uh, jobs plentiful, uh, for example, indexes from the conference board survey. Look at claims. These things are telling us that uh, labor market growth should accelerate at a very high rate. But you also need to look at um, uh, things that limit, that cap that job growth. And uh, unfortunately, there's really very um, few precedents in the past that uh, help us forecast uh, those things. But just based on demand, you know, job gains should be higher than a million. Look at the previous year, for example. Like at this period of time, just a year ago, we saw gains in two million, like uh, exceeding two million, five million jobs coming out of the initial uh, uh, wave of uh, uh, the virus. So you would think, okay, the economy is in a much better shape at this point, so we should see uh, much higher gains. But people adjusted to the new reality. And right now, it, it is really the supply of workers that is holding uh, a more significant progress in the labor market. Yelena, we've heard two very smart people, Gina Martin-Adams and uh, Tom Keen, both talk about margin compression. What do they mean? What? Why are employers having to reduce margins um, in order to get employees back at work? Well, they have to uh, raise wages to attract them, right? That, that's the supply uh, issue uh, uh, by itself. So you really need to attract workers who are just uh, sitting on the sidelines. Uh, I think that uh, we may see some temporary pickup in compensation, but I don't really believe that it will um, start a new wave of wage acceleration at a fundamental level. I think, you know, still the slack in the labor market is so big at 7.6 million people that uh, at the end of the day, it will weigh on um, wage growth. It's, it, it may spike uh, temporarily, just uh, in form of temporary bonuses or things like that to attract workers back into the labor force. But um, fundamentally, going forward, I don't see a big increase in wages. So, Yelena, I was kind of skeptical when the argument was raised last month that you know, the reason that the number missed so much, again, 266,000 versus a consensus of, you know, close to a million, that was because people weren't incented to go back to the workforce because they were receiving such generous unemployment benefits. But now we've got a couple of months of data points here. Is that a rational economic argument? Do you think that actually holds water? Well, it's one of the uh, factors that uh, is holding uh, uh, more uh, growth uh, back. I think we will uh, find an answer to that uh, in June and July because uh, a lot of those uh, augmented unemployment benefits are expiring. So at least we will clear that hurdle. But there are other things uh, to look at. And I think, you know, being a mother of a toddler, I, I can certainly see why a lot of women are not going back into the labor force. 
you cannot simply find a, a proper uh, child care. You are scared to send your child back uh, to, uh, you know, to a child care center or uh, back to school for in-person learning. So uh, with more vaccinations and, and uh, even like if you can get your kids vaccinated by, by say, September, October, that will help a lot uh, to, in terms of acceleration and job growth. And another thing is just simple inertia on the part of potential entrants into the labor force. We can probably by now figure out how to live on one income uh, instead of two, for example. And some people will just stay in that state. So it will be very hard to draw back all the people that we lost from the labor force. Well, and uh, as the Secretary of Labor said uh, just uh, just now, a few minutes ago, you cannot flip a switch. So it'll take some time to for people to get back. Maybe at least three months, right? I mean, we're going into summer, and if you are receiving unemployment benefits, the kids are going to be out of school for the next three months and you figured it out in terms of your, um, you know, in terms of the budget, why even bother looking for a job until September other than to please, you know, the person at the work center? Well, that just <laughs> tells you that maybe the summer will not be as hot as uh, would be expected by all this uh, surveys and uh, increased reopening demand. So it may take some time for uh, job growth to accelerate. So even though, you know, GDP growth will probably hit 10% in the second quarter and the third quarter of this year, it will take much longer for employment growth to accelerate. And that is a key reason why the Fed is not going to rush into ending uh, asset purchases at uh, the pace that uh, is uh, at the current pace. I think Tapering talks will probably commence towards the end of the summer, but the actual tapering process will not start until 2022. Elena, did the, the data we're seeing here in the labor front, does that impact your GDP forecast at uh, Bloomberg Economics? Not GDP forecast, because uh, for GDP forecast and the implications from the payrolls report, we usually look at hours worked, and hours worked are quite strong. So, uh, and quite consistent with our um, forecast uh, for uh, the second quarter GDP growth in the vicinity of 10%. I think uh, that still holds. What about Carl's forecast at Bloomberg Intelligence? Uh, what is Carl's forecast? I don't know. I thought you guys worked together. I just, I'm learning about this separation. I had no idea. Well, uh, that is uh, um, an interesting situation. And uh, actually, Carl was a little bit more pessimistic on uh, on that. So I, I, I really miss him. I really miss his judgment. All right. So, Yelena, what do you think we're going to hear from Fed Chairman Powell over the coming weeks and months? Um, I, I guess this gives him some ammunition to kind of say, see, we know what we're doing. Well, <laughs> so the Fed... I think really knows what they're doing. They they are being patient, and I think that will hold this uh, status quo, and uh, we will not see any uh, you know major updates in terms of uh, tapering or, uh, of course, no interest rate increases talk for a very long time. So our forecast holds for tapering to start in 2022, and uh, for that. 
we do need to see a string of accelerating job gains uh, going into the late summer so that Chair Powell can um, talk about, uh, you know, some progress, some significant progress towards uh, uh, the Fed's goals and dual mandate. And inflation, we're going to get CPI numbers again next week, uh, probably still acceleration in the pace of inflation. That will not change uh, their stance. Oh, that may push people back to work, though, because we, we're seeing now, Yelena, that food prices are up to their highest level in a decade. Um, housing, obviously, off the charts, uh, you know, ca- car transportation costs rising with gasoline at the pump. So I guess if you're looking for a catalyst while we're still on these um, unemployment, uh, generous unemployment, relatively generous unemployment um, um, uh, and don't monies. And forget about uh- – don't forget about the savings, those extra accumulated savings uh, over the term of the crisis. I think people will be slightly indifferent to all this um, uh, wage, well, to all these price increases over the course of the summer. While they still have those savings and they still get some of those benefits, but a stimulus uh, payment kind of yep. fade into the end of the summer we will see some de- deterioration in the purchasing power, and then those price increases will sting. All right, Yelena, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. As always, Yelena Shilateva, Bloomberg senior U.S. economist, giving her thoughts on the May jobs report. All right, let's check in right now with Bloomberg opinion columnist Tim O'Brien. He is writing about the success of Zoom, I mean, um, we all now Zoom each other, regardless of whether we're actually using Zoom video communications technology. You just call it that, like Kleenex or uh, <laughs> Pampers, right? So, um, like Google, we Google things and we Zoom people. Um, Tim, it's interesting uh, you write in your column that we that we say this because. The one of the biggest companies in the world, uh, Microsoft, has had technology to do this kind of thing, Skype, for much longer than Zoom's been around. And yet, as you put it, um, Zoom left Skype in its dust. How? Why? Micro, Microsoft had a product that was also a verb, right? We used to say <laughs> Skype me instead of I'll Zoom with you. True. Uh, it, it just shows how dangerous it might be to have your, your company's name put in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, I think, you know, this is an example of, I, I think, not only Skype, but also Internet Explorer, which I addressed in the column, as two products owned by a tech titan that was unable to either preserve the market share they had when it developed or bought them, and, and largely, I think, because it was out of sync with what it needed to do to create a competitive product. And I think the technology industry is full of examples of this in which, uh, you know, companies can't maintain leads for a long time because there's such a, a, a primacy based on utility, quality, and innovation. And if you can't keep up, it doesn't matter if you've got Microsoft's deep pockets and expertise in some cases, you can really get shunted to the wit- to the side of the road. And 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 we've seen this now happen with Zoom, obviously. Yeah, Tim, we see this all the time in technology, and, and we hear about it from entrepreneurs, founders of these companies. They're they're wary, you know. They they, they want to take the big takeout deal, the big money, the big payday from 
you know, a Microsoft or a Google, but they really are fearful of losing, you know, that edge that made them such a disruptor in the first place. And your column points out that's kind of what we see here in a couple of examples from Microsoft. Right. You know, if you think back to about 2001 or so, Internet Explorer had at least a 95% share of the browser market. And today that is at less than 1%. Wow. And Google, Google Chrome it has well over 60% of the global browser market. And Google developed a better product. It, it was lighter. It loaded faster. Developers preferred it. It played well on mobile. And some of this is, is a legacy of, of Microsoft's own history. Microsoft was a world beater when it introduced Windows as the leading PC desktop application. And everything Microsoft built was really, in a way, tethered to the desktop. And the company got sideswiped by the web and then sideswiped by mobile. And it wasn't able, I think, to create consumer products that did as well on mobile as a company like Google. And you saw that borne out in the, in the web browser wars. And, and now with video conferencing, you know, Microsoft has a great product, Microsoft Teams. Uh, it's a great video conferencing tool. It's built up a big audience. Uh, but it's a corporate tool more than it's a consumer tool. And, and Zoom obviously took the world by storm during the pandemic. Had Microsoft stayed out its game, it paid over $8 billion to buy Skype in 2011. And, and I doubt they feel they've gotten the return on that investment, to say the least. But had they done it right, they would have been beautifully positioned when the pandemic rolled around to have a product that consumers would have embraced online. Is it maybe not possible to always create the best product? I mean, I think about this a lot in terms of music, Tim. Like um, Or autos, right? You know, autos, yes. you know, the auto industry, like the back of your hand, right? Yes. But, well... I, I, you know, there are examples there that are, well, I guess it's all a matter of taste. But if I look, listen to Derek and the Dominoes, Layla, it's great from start to finish. It's like an unbelievable record. And if you think, why doesn't another band come out with a record that's as good or better? And they just can't, right? I, I wonder why can't Internet Explorer be as good as Chrome? Um, maybe Chrome just wrote that perfect song and, you know, they got lucky. Well, I think luck is a factor. I mean, I think Google was positioned at the time to really be uh, a present for, for both the mobile and the web revolution in a way that Microsoft couldn't because of its own legacy. This happens to companies in industry after industry. You know, you see it now in the auto industry with electric vehicles, yep. right? Tesla has been positioned to be a world leader in EVs. Whether or not it can sustain that over time is one thing. But they also, as a company, were positioned to take advantage of a trend that the big, the, the big uh, Detroit yeah. automakers couldn't jump on. Right? Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. A fascinating column. Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, he's got a fascinating column out today. Just kind of looking at Zoom, looking at Skype and Microsoft. Where did Microsoft kind of go wrong where they lost uh, that leading position in the uh, video conference business to Zoom, which we've all become accustomed to uh, here uh, over the last year and a half. And you can read all of Tim's stuff and all the good stuff from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Or if you're sitting in front of one of those great Bloomberg terminals, just type in O-P-I-N-Go and get some really great work from Bloomberg Opinion. This is Bloomberg. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.